Well, I draw your attention this morning to this passage of Scripture, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 and 15, as something of an introduction to the entire epistle itself. And the reason why I'm focusing on these particular passages is because what we see uh, the Apostle Peter doing is he's given the reason for his writing. There's a very real sense in which Peter understands that shortly, to use his words, he will be putting off this earthly tabernacle. He understands that the church of Jesus Christ will need, again, instruction, that the church of Jesus Christ will need the word of God to carry it through. And so what he does in a very clear way is he sets before his readers, you and I, he sets before us the reality of what the Christian life is like, number one. In a very real sense, this is what chapter one is all about. We see kind of a, if I can put it this way, an exposition of the Christian life. We see where the Christian life begins. We see the development of the Christian life. We see what the Christian life is based upon, the Word of God. After that, he moves on to, uh, to the second chapter. And in the second chapter, what he reminds us of is that there are, in the life of the Christian, and there is in the history of the church, a very real threat, even from within the church, It's somewhat surprising to hear Peter mention this, but it's something that we see in a number of places in Scripture. The Apostle Paul warned against this. Our Lord Jesus Christ warned against this when he warned against wolves in sheep's clothing. So Peter will set before us this this caution and this concern, we might say this expose of challenges that occur within the professing church. And those challenges come to us through false teachers. And Peter will give one of the most clear uh, expositions of false teachers and their methods and particularly their end in the second chapter of the second epistle. But he also go on in the third chapter to expose or to set before us another challenge that we as the people of God face. Another challenge that the church of Jesus Christ faces, faces even in this present day. And that is the reality of scoffers. Those who mock, those who uh, try to destroy, those who try to belittle not only faith itself, but those who hold faith. And this is a very real challenge to the people of God as well. Some of us, some of you may have been the brunt of scoffing and mocking. And you know what it does uh, inside. You know what it, uh, the response that you get to uh, when you feel and sense that kind of uh, mocking. Peter brings this to, it, to our attention in order to remind us that this is a real challenge to faith in our day as well. But the last thing that Peter does is he gives this great call to remain steadfast, to remain faithful, to remain diligent, to continue, in on, to continue on the Christian path. And so there, for all these reasons, I really believe that this second epistle of Peter will be a very valuable epistle to us to go over in the weeks and the months to come to look at what Peter has to say about the nature of the Christian life, to see what Peter says about false teachers, again, their methods, their nature, and their end, to see what Peter says about scoffers who we oftentimes encounter. And so these reasons, the very reasons that are embedded in the text itself, would be the reasons why I would suggest to you that it's worth your while to hear an exposition on the second epistle of Peter. And again, I I set that before you purposely. I want you to have in your mind reasons why you should hear an exposition of this particular portion of Scripture. And the reasons, again, are as follows. Number one, 2 Peter gives us a wonderful description of the Christian life. Number two, Peter gives to us a needed description of false teachers. I think in a very real way, this 
this in one sense may be uh, one of the things that we are going to really have to emphasize in our present day. The reality of false teachers within the church of Jesus Christ. And we'll develop that in the days to come. <clears throat> but thirdly, as I said before, because Peter gives us this expose of not only false teachers, teachers but of scoffers as well. There have been scoffers in the history of man since, again, recorded history has been noted. We stop and think as far back as Noah, those who were scoffing and mocking Noah building the ark. And even to the last day, we will see scoffers with us. And so you and I need to know how to, how to deal with those who would make mock of uh, the word of God. And then lastly, the reason why we need to give attention to this section of scripture is because of the exhortation, the godly living that we receive, again, in the face of false teachers and in the face of the scoffers. Well, again, I want you to see primarily in this, uh, in this exposition of 2 Peter uh, the following truth. I want you to know and understand that in light of these challenges to your faith, in light of these challenges to the Christian faith, the Christian is to exercise diligence in his spiritual growth and to take care not to fall into the error of the wicked. He is to take care that he doesn't fall into the error of the wicked. And what I would do right now is just take, take your Bibles and go to the very last two verses in the epistle. And you'll see that Peter himself is making the case for this. Notice what he says at the end of Second uh, Peter chapter 3. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing that ye know these things before, beware lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What's Peter doing here? At the end of this epistle, again, he's reiterating the reason why he wrote the epistle. He writes the epistle because he does not want you to fall from your steadfastness. He does not want you to fall into the error of the wicked. And in this case here in Second Peter, the error of the wicked comes from two primary sources. Number one, from false teachers within the church. And number two, from scoffers outside of the church. Peter is aware of this kind of pressure. And Peter, in one sense, has a, has a very unique perspective to be able to, to give us this kind of exhortation. Peter knows what it's like to be something of the, of the brunt of accusations from without. So many times I think of Peter and his... Well, I don't want to say it this way, but I think of Peter and his failures, and I don't like to think about Peter and his failures, but Peter has failed, and, and again, thank God that the, the Lord Jesus Christ restored him. But have you ever given thought to the fact that Peter was undone, not by the pressure of the, the, the religious authorities, not by the pressures of uh, maybe military might, Peter was undone by the simple question of a young girl. Aren't you one of him? Aren't you one of his followers also? And Peter, for whatever reason, melted or, or shrunk under that question. Peter the rock. Peter who was ready to take his sword off and, and cut off heads if need be. This one question and he was undone. And so what is Peter saying here? I don't want you to fall again from your steadfastness through the error of the wicked. And so again... In the months to come, what we're going to do is we're going to open up this passage of Scripture, hopefully for the glory of God and to the good of our souls, in such a way as to see what the Word of God has for us in this passage of Scripture. 
Now, again, when you get back to the to the early part of the epistle, and we have to, again, uh, start here, if we go back to verses uh, 12 through 15, we see again what Peter wants to do. Notice specifically verse 15. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. What you need to understand here is this. Peter is given the reason why he is writing what he's writing. And in this sense, it kind of carry overs into the very uh, into the very reason why Scripture is given. Scripture is given because when the Lord Jesus Christ has come and on His earthly ministry is set, after His earthly ministry ascended into heaven, after those first apostles are gone, what is left? It's not an it's not an ongoing succession of apostles. It is being left with the written word of God. Peter says, I'm writing these things so that after my decease, he doesn't say you may have another apostle on the scene. He says, after my decease, you might have the word of God. And so the word of God becomes for us once again, the very centerpiece of what our Christian life, faith and worship is all about. And it's through the word of God that, again, we are being warned and protected of these uh, conflicts and of these assaults uh, that Satan makes upon the soul. And so again, we see Peter's emphasis here. But what I want you to do, what I want to do then with you this morning is I want to work through uh, this entire epistle just by way, of an overview, uh, by way of an overview. We're not going to spend any detailed amount of time in any one section, but I kind of want to give you a bird's eye view of this passage of scripture, of this epistle. Uh, normally when I begin expositions of a particular book of the Bible, this is how I like to proceed I'd like to be able to, if we can, kind of capture the sense overall of what the book is teaching. I think that's very important, knowing the whole that will help us to understand the parts. I think that's very important. Uh, secondly, what I want to do here today is I want to show you the flow of the passage of Scripture. This, this book of Scripture has a very distinct flow to it, and it starts out with an explanation of what the Christian life is like. It develops the challenges of the Christian life, and then it exhorts us to continue on steadfastly and diligently in the things of the Christian life. And so that's what we'll do here this morning. And the first thing I want you to see that Peter lays out before us then is the Christian life in its origin, its nature, and its basis. The Christian life in its origin, its nature, and I would add its development and its basis. Where do we see these things? Well, we see first and foremost in verse 1 of first Peter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, the, the origin of the Christian life. Notice what Peter says here. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith. This is the origin of the Christian life. The origin of the Christian life is all bound up in that little phrase, that have obtained like precious faith. <clears throat> And this, this, this reference to the word obtain is a very interesting word here. Because what it means essentially is this, is that your Christian faith is not something that you earned. That your Christian faith is not something that originated in you. That your Christian faith is not something that you worked in order to grasp. But this Christian faith that you profess, that faith which is common to the faith of Peter. That faith which is the same faith as the apostles. That faith which is the same faith that was once delivered to the saints. This faith has been granted to you. You've obtained it by grace. And what we see in this passage of scripture then is the, is the great origin of the work of God within the soul. It originates within God's saving purposes. 
Their God in eternity past made a decree. Their God in eternity past had a people in mind. Their God in eternity past originated a plan. And it all centered in the person of Jesus Christ. And in the process of time, you obtained like precious faith. Aren't you glad that this is the way that the Christian life originates? It originates in the grace and in the glory of God himself. This work that God is doing in your soul didn't originate in you. It originated in God. And this is what the Apostle Paul, this is what the Apostle Peter is telling us here. The origin of the Christian faith is that it finds its origin in God, granting to the believer that, uh, that very gift of faith. The second thing that we see here, and again in the first chapter here, is that we see the development of the Christian life. And let me say this, you must have, a, uh, you must have in your mind a particular conception of the Christian life that involves development. A particular conception of the Christian life that involves development. A view of the Christian life that does not embrace the the concept of a developing of the spiritual life that God has placed in you is a wrong view of the Christian life. The Christian life is exactly that. It is a life. And life always shows progress. Life always shows, again, all the, uh, all the characteristics of being alive and, 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 and moving on. And that's what we're seeing now when Peter talks about the development of the Christian life. And we see this in verses 5 through 11. Again, this is kind of a, a well-known portion of this, uh, of this uh, epistle, second epistle of Peter. But Peter says this, And besides all this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and the virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and the temperance patience, and the patience godliness, and the godliness brotherly kindness, and the brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see the very theme and concept of development here. Excuse me. That the Christian life is to be that life which is ongoing. That life which is always uh, uh, ever going toward conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we come to this passage of Scripture, we will obviously take a look at each of these things that the Apostle Peter says we are to add to our faith. And I ask you the question, what has been added to your faith in these past few days? What have you been diligent about in the Christian life in these past few days? Have you been diligent in the Christian faith in these past few days? Or have you been coasting in these past few days? You have to understand that it is in the very nature of the Christian life that there be a particular diligence given to living out the Christian life. Peter makes this emphasis. And so here we see the beginning of the Christian life. We see the nature of the Christian life. It is to be growing. It is to be developing. But the third thing that we see is this, is the basis of the Christian life. And this is where we come in the second epistle, in the first chapter here of, of Peter, to one of the classic statements on the doctrine of Scripture. Because what Peter will do now is that he will base everything in the Christian life on the reality that holy men of old were moved by the Spirit of God and spake as the Spirit gave utterance. There is in the Scripture this divine authority. There is in the Scripture this recording, we might say, of God Himself. And so that's what Peter emphasizes then in verses uh, verses 16 through 21. And notice what he says here. For we have not uh, followed cunningly devised uh, fables 
when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. And we have also a more sure word of prophecy whereunto you do well to take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first that no prophecy of, of the scriptures of any private interpretation for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What's Peter saying here? Peter's saying is essentially, what Peter's is saying is essentially this, that the entire Christian life is to be centered in the word of God. That the word of God is not, <clears throat> excuse me, that which is optional in the life of the Christian, but rather the word of God is that which is the basis of the Christian's life and experience. And the basis of this, of this, uh, of the word of God that is given to us here, or the, or the reason for its centerpiece in the, uh, in, in, uh, in the mind of the Christian, is because, as Peter said, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Spirit of God. You have the Spirit-inspired word of God in your possession, and it's the Spirit-inspired word of God in your possession that will keep you from the errors of the false teachers. Keep you from the shame that the mockers try to cast upon you. You see the word of God having this central place in the life of the people of God individually in the life of the church. And so Peter bringing all these things out. And again, I hope you've noticed already something about this idea of the diligence that Peter mentions here. As a matter of fact, it's kind of interesting. Peter can't get away from this word diligence. We've already seen it in verse 5. Again, where he says, uh, and beside this, giving all diligence... We've seen it again in verse 10. Wherefore, rather, brethren, give diligence. We see it again in the 14th verse of this third chapter. Notice what Peter says here. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent. What's Peter saying here? This is the nature of the Christian life. The Christian life is not lived on cruise control. The Christian life is lived with a real diligence in bringing to bear in the life all the transforming effects of the grace of God given in the scripture through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's why we need this epistle in our day. That's why in weeks and months to come, this epistle will be open. <clears throat> because this epistle opens up for us so much about the life of the Christian. And so that's the first reason why I set before you why we need to study this second epistle because it lays out for us so much important information about what the nature of the Christian life is. But secondly, and Peter moves on in the second chapter, the second reason why we need to study this passage of scripture, this epistle, is because of the warnings that it gives concerning false teachers. As I said before, this, uh, this, this warning concerning false teachers is, is somewhat surprising in a way. <clears throat> because of the way that Peter opens this up. It's not surprising that he would warn us against false teachers, but it's somewhat surprising that false teachers figure so prominently this early in the life of the church. That's what's kind of amazing. I think we have a mindset that we think, well, if we could just get back to what the early church was, and much of that sentiment I would not disagree with, but we have to understand that the early church was not some kind of pristine a gathering of the people of God unopposed by error from within and hostility from without. And so what Peter is going to do now is he's going to lay open, lay bare false teachers. And he does it in a very interesting way. 
He will lay bare the nature of false teachers. And this is one of the things that is, is going to be consistent throughout this second chapter. In false teachers, you have primarily a, def a defect of nature. And the defect of nature is not some personality quirk that they have. The defect of nature is in the sense that they are not regenerate men. And they act like unregenerate men in the garbs of the regenerate. <clears throat> Classically, wolves in sheep's clothing. And so Peter will expose their nature. The second thing he will do, and this is what will become so helpful for us in our day, is that he will expose their methodology. There is a particular methodology that false teachers use, and Peter lays it out. These men are very subtle. <clears throat> These men are very capable. I've said this, and of course it's prone to be misunderstood. I don't mean it to be, I don't mean it to be misunderstood. But I'll say it again here now. Probably some of the best preachers you ever heard, as far as their eloquence, as far as their charisma, as far as their presentation, probably the best, some, some of the best preachers you ever heard were false teachers. It is, in some strange way, the very, the, very, the very methodology of what a false teacher is able to do. He is able to speak very persuasively. He has that degree of eloquence that is, able to, that is able to cause his hearers to carry through on what he's saying. And so because of that, Peter exposes not only their nature, he exposes their methodology, but the third thing he exposes is their, is their end. You see, false teachers have a particular end. Just like the people of God have a particular end. Remember what Peter says, you know, if you do these things, there will be this, this entrance, you will be ushered into this entrance, in, in, into the presence of our Lord. That's your end. That's the end of the people of God. Well, the false teachers have an end as well. And I'll point that out to you here shortly. But I want you to see each of these things by way of their nature, their method, and their end. The first thing that we see by way of their nature is essentially this. It's, it's kind of comprehended or, or put together in a very short space in verse 10 of chapter 2. Look at verse, uh, look, look at verse uh, 10 of chapter 2. Peter says this, But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous they are, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. In other words, Peter is giving a description of their nature. These men, in spite of what appearance they have in the church, these men are unregenerate men. That's why, that's why in, in, a, in, a, in a parallel passage, <clears throat> in the epistle of Jude, Jude says this about these false teachers. He, he describes them as sensual, not having the spirit. Sensual, that is fleshly, not having the spirit. And so again, what we are dealing with here is that false teachers, they're in the church. They know the language of the church. They use the vocabulary of the church. They have all the appearances on the outside of being saved men. But inwardly, what are they? <clears throat> they are men of corrupt minds. They are men who distort the truth. They are men who use the people of God to make merchandise of them. And that's one of their methods. One of the things that these false teachers do is they make merchandise of the people of God. So, so that when the false teacher comes to the flock of Jesus Christ, he is there not to serve the flock of Jesus Christ. He is there to make use of the flock of Jesus Christ to his own ends. That's why false teachers are, are, are so destructive in the way, and that's why they're called out the, the, the way that they are. And we see their method, again, brought to a very kind of short space in verses 18 and 19. Look what we see here. 
For when they speak great swelling words of vanity. See, remember I said about their eloquence? Great swelling words. These men can preach. They have everything down pat by way of what it means, uh, by way of oratory and everything else. For when they speak uh, great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh. Through much wantonness, those that were clean escape from them that live in error. Very interesting pictures here. What a false teacher is able to do under the garb or in the garb of religious language, he's able to appeal to the fallen nature of man. And in some way of keeping it in, in, in line with religious vocabulary, he makes an appeal to the lust of men. And through that appeal, that's the process of where we begin to see the false teacher making merchandise of the flock of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, the same is brought in the bondage. Oh, what's one of these passages of Scripture that stick out in our mind, does it not? For of whom a man is overcome, the same as he brought in the bondage. And this is what the end of these false teachers are. Again, I'm sorry, that's not their end. This is what the end of what these false teachers do. They never give real soul freedom. They're not able to. They have no connection to the regenerating work of God. They may know the language. They may be able to speak the words. But there's no power behind the words. Why? Because there is no connection to the saving power of God in Jesus Christ. And this passage of scripture that says this about the false teachers, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. It reminds us of what we read in, the, in Romans chapter 6, verse 19. The same idea where, where Paul says, of, what, of, of, of that which a man has overcome, the same he has brought, brought in the bondage. And what are we seeing here? What we're seeing is essentially this, that these false teachers in the church, using the words of Christ, using the vocabulary of the, uh, the, using the, vocabulary of the church, are unable to deliver a man from his own sin. And so again, um, so we, and again, we see this, uh, as I said before, in Romans chapter uh, 6, uh, in, in Romans chapter 6, the same idea that to whom a man yields himself the servant of, he, that he is that man's slave. And here the picture is being a slave to sin. And so that's the, na- that's the, that's, uh, again, that's the, uh, that's the nature of these false teacher, the teachers, that's the method of these false teachers. But the last thing I want you to see about these false teachers is their end. And we see this in verses uh, 21 and 22. Notice what Peter says here. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to have turned from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true uh, proverb, the dog is turned again to his own vomit and the sow that was washed to wallowing in the mire. What is the end of these false teachers? The end of these false teachers is essentially this. They go back to their old lust. They go back to their old condemnation. That there is no freedom from the sins of which they are held in bondage. And that is what is so, again, uh, in a sense, unnerving about this whole thing. Here is a man using religious language. Here is a man in the church of Jesus Christ. And when it's all said and done, what good is he to the church? He's no good to the church. He makes merchandise of the church. He's no good to his own soul. Why? Because when it's all said and done, he will return as a dog to his vomit. He will return as a pig to the mire. Very interesting in the way Peter uses the, the, the imagery of animals in his epistles. And Second Peter here, again, he refers to, to false teachers. And one of the things that we're going to have to deal with in our exposition of Second Peter here is essentially this. 
How are we going to deal with those passages of Scripture in Peter where on the one hand, he really gives out a real firm basis for the believer's security? Salvation decreed from eternity past through the election of God, the saving power of God, the keeping power of God, what we would call the perseverance of the saints. How do we deal with that when on the, when on the other hand, Peter repeatedly gives these very stern warnings? Again, here in this passage of Scripture, these men claimed to be one thing and they were not. And oftentimes we read this and we say, well, here's a man who, who was once saved, but then he turned back to his old ways. Well, that's one way of looking at this passage of Scripture. I would suggest that's not, the, that's not the best way or the proper way of looking at it. Because what we see here is that there was, there was in these false teachers a nature that was never changed. It's the sow that goes back to the mire. It's the dog that goes back to his vomit. Now getting to this imagery of animals that Peter uses, he uses one more image of, a, of an animal in his writings. And that is the, and that is the image of a sheep. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says this, But ye were once as sheep going astray, but now are returned to the bishop of your souls. Do you see the difference? To those who are the true sheep of the flock of God, they may stray, but they return. To those who claim to be teachers in the flock of God, whose nature were never changed, they go back to their own nature. Here we see then not only, the, not only the nature of false teachers, not only the method of false teachers, but we see the end of false teachers as well. Well, again, this is the, uh, this is the challenge to the Christian faith from within the church. We have to be aware of this. And the reason why we have to be aware of this, particularly in our days, is because we have the ability to have information given to us from almost any quarter. I, I would not be surprised at all if some of you watched religious programming this morning, if some of you listened to religious broadcasting this morning, if some of you may have been uh, online looking up a particular verse in one, one way or another. And so you and I have before us this openness to all this information. Well, not, every, not, not, not everybody, it's like the old saying, not everybody who's talking about heaven is going there. And it's the same thing with the false teachers here. Just because they were using this religious language does not mean that they are teaching the way of God truly. That's why, you, that's why Peter says, look, after my decease, I want you to have something in your hand that you can make evaluation by way of these false teachers. He doesn't say, I'm going to set up a succession of bishops. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to leave within your hand the word of God in order that you might be able to see, improve, and evaluate that's why, as I said before, the Word of God is so valuable to us. So these false teachers, sadly, within the church. But there's another threat that the believer faces, and that's from scoffers on the outside, mockers. And that's what that word scoffer means. What, a, what is a scoffer? Well, there's a sense in which we would say this about a scoffer. A scoffer is that individual who opposes... A scoffer is that individual who, who opposes, who mocks, who disagrees, and then even recruits others to his own particular view. And we come across this oftentimes, do we not? A lot of times we are, you know, we're fortunate to be in the presence of, of, of people who can conduct themselves very civilly, of people who may know what it is to disagree with a point of view, but yet to still be able to hold kind of a, a, a common level of decency in our public exchange one with another. But we also know individuals who just are not able to do that. 
And as soon as they find out of a particular uh, theological view that we hold, as soon as they find out that we make no apology about being followers of Jesus Christ in this world, in this place at this time, well, again, there they begin to mock. And if they can't in any way, again, uh, bring anything uh, against you by way of your personal testimony, and let me say this, this is why our personal testimonies are so important. You know that, right? Because when a scoffer and a mocker see, hears what we say, and they see, they see some inconsistency in our life, you know where the mocking is then. The mocking isn't necessarily against the word of God. The mocking will be against you personally. It will always eventually be against you personally. But you know how quick that undercuts our testimony in public. I thought you were a Christian. And you're doing that? that, that that's what your Christianity is? We've all heard these pushbacks. And so again, let us make sure that our life and our conduct is such that honors the testimony of the gospel in, in, in public. But again, scoffers and mockers. All the way through the history of the scripture, we see this. Again, we've seen this as early as, the, as, as, as Noah in, in, in building of the ark. We've seen it in the Old Testament. I think of a passage of scripture that I think is very appropriate to the day, day and age in which we live. Proverbs, I believe it's 14.9. Fools make a mock of sin. Fools make a mock of sin. And we, we've encountered that, haven't we? When we say, to, to, when we say to, to maybe our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, well, such and such a thing is a sin. Oh, come on. You don't believe that, do you? And so, again, there is this pushback. And so we see all the way through the history of the people of God, there has been the reality of mockers. And there's a sense also in which Peter is kind of looking in the future, you know, and, and, and concerning um, uh, false teachers in, in, in the second chapter, he says, as there were false prophets among the people, so there shall also be false teachers among you. Well, again, in the third chapter, he's talking about scoffers, not only that existed then, but scoffers who were yet to come. And what is it specifically they are scoffing about? What is it specifically that is the object of their scoffing? And it's primarily, and I have to say this, it's primarily an element of the Christian faith and an element of the gospel that we probably don't emphasize as much as we should. And what the mockers and scoffers scoff at is the reality of the return, the glorious return of Jesus Christ. You see, somehow we don't always incorporate that into our presentation of the gospel. We, in one sense, kind of, if I can put it this way, we, we, we in one sense, we, 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 um, we tailor our presentation of the gospel to our own day and age. What do I mean by that? Most people probably don't care about Jesus coming again. They would probably not even really want to deal with that thought. But they may be concerned about their souls in hell. And so what we do when we present the gospel is essentially this. We say, and and this is nothing wrong, we say, the Lord Jesus Christ died for your sins. You understand the weight and the guilt of your sin? Again, I I was talking with somebody just just yesterday, actually, and she was telling me about uh, the relationship between her sister and her father, and there was some some strain on the relationship there. And the father on his dying bed was was desiring to have his daughter express forgiveness toward him. And I was saying to to, to the woman, I said, isn't it something how that even at, at the level of human nature, we want things made right before we pass, don't we? We don't want to leave this world being unreconciled to those who are closest to us. What's it going to be like to go into eternity unreconciled to God? And so you see, we, we, we tailor the message along those lines. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. But go to the book of Acts and listen to the gospel being preached. And you know it's in every sermon in the book of Acts? And he will come again to judge the, he, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. 
Jesus Christ is returning to this earth. That is a central piece of the Christian message. And when mockers hear that, they mock. They scoff. They say, come on. Jesus is coming back. And we say, yes. Yes, that is part and parcel of your Christian faith. And let me say this. Go back to chapter 2. And what if I were in this pulpit telling you, well, you know, Jesus is not really going to come back. It's just the way that they talked in that day. And I might make you feel comfortable in society, but I would be falling right in line with what Peter says a false teacher is. Brothers and sisters, we're, we're, we're bound. That, that's why Peter wrote this. So that he says, after my decease, you'll have these things. And so we, we deal with the reality of mockers. And Peter lays out how we're to do that. Again, the first thing that he does is, is he shows to us, again, uh, the fact that there are going to be scoffers. He, again, brings out the nature of scoffers. And this is worth noting. Because I think sometimes we get intimidated by those who are able to pick apart our arguments, so to speak. Those who, who can kind of cherry pick certain things. But that's exactly what they do. They cherry pick. Notice what Peter says in, verse, in, in chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. He says, As knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Verse 5, For this they are willingly ignorant, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the uh, water and in the water. Again, what's Peter saying here? They are, they are willfully ignorant. What else is he saying? Notice here in verse 3, that in the last days scoffers shall come, walking after their own lust. You see, what the scoffer is doing is the scoffer is doing what sinful men always do. He is prioritizing his own lust over the commands of God. And in one sense, that's the real dividing line to, to help us to understand who we are, what we are, and where we are. It's the same thing that you and I as Christians have to deal with on a daily basis. Am I willing to entertain thoughts that are dishonoring the God because they happen to give me some type of personal pleasure? Or am I willing, by the grace of God, taking up the duty of mortification to put those thoughts at the cross of Jesus Christ? You see, that's the dividing. I think you've heard me say this before. Sometimes the subtle difference between sin and righteousness is that in, a, in that split second, there is a determination to gratify self rather than glorify God. What do these scoffers do? They're, they're walking after their own lust. You know, it's, it's one thing, and, 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 I'm, and I'm not saying that this doesn't happen. It's one thing when we sit down with somebody who has honest and intellectual issues that they want to discuss about the gospel. This is, we understand this. But when men used arguments against the gospel in order to crown their own lust, well, we know where this is going. The nature's already been revealed. We see and we understand. <clears throat> but notice what else Peter says here. He not only talks about the nature of scoffers, he talks about the opportunity that God gives the scoffers. This is phenomenal. He talks not only about the nature of scoffers, like he did about false teachers, he also talks about the opportunity for scoffers. What do I mean? Look at verses, look at, look at verses three, uh, 8 through uh, 9. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You mean even the scoffers? Yes, even the scoffers. 
And I have to say, there are a number of things that I find interesting here. Number one, I find it interesting that in, con- in the context of the false teachers, Peter is he's using language that does look a little bit in the future, but it's closer. It's, 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 there's a closer proximity to Peter and to us. When he talks about the scoffers, he says in the last days. Now, now we can talk about the last days in Scripture. Sometimes it is a comprehensive term that, de- that defines the whole period of time from the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the end of time. There are other times when it seems to particularly focus on what we know as and what we think about when we talk about the last days. You know, the last days when there will be all kind of um, you know, things going on that we read about in Scripture. And we think ourselves, and I, and I would agree, we think ourselves to be living in the last days. But what I want you to see here is that Peter says the false teachers are kind of like a present threat. The, the scoffers are, are a present, but something of a future, uh, uh, a future threat. And the other thing that I find interesting is this. When it comes to the end of the false teachers, Peter just says flat out, these, the, 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 these, the, these dogs and these pigs, they return to the very thing that reveals their nature. They return to their vomit and they return to the mire. But with the scoffer, I find it very interesting that in the context of Peter speaking about scoffers, he holds out hope. This is amazing because, this, because in the scripture, the scoffer is never viewed in any positive light. As a matter of fact, the scoffer is always viewed in a very precarious light. But no matter how precarious the state of the sinner may be, there is a message of hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why you and I must keep clear what the gospel is. You are of no hope to your scoffing friend should you go along with this scoffing. You are no hope to your scoffing friend should you fall should you fall prey to the false teachers. You see, brothers and sisters, you have you are the lifesavers, if I can put it this way, that God is throwing out into the world today, that's sinking. You and I with the message of the hope of the gospel. And so again, in this passage of scripture, the hope that's even offered to the false uh, to, to to the scoffers. So Peter goes through this through this whole epistle. He talks about the nature of the Christian life: diligence, growing, active, more and more like Christ. He talks about the the basis of the Word of God and how careful we have to be that we understand what the Word of God teaches, not to fall prey to false teachers, not to not to give in to to, to, to the mockers and the scoffers. All these things he sets before us, but he's not done with the epistle yet. There's still one more thing that he has to do, and what he does is he comes back to the nature of the Christian life. And can I put it this way? There's a sense in which Peter's explanation of the Christian life are the great bookends of this epistle. In between is his, is, his, uh, is his development of false teachers. In between is the development of the scoffers. But what we see by way of the bookends is essentially this. It is the nature of the Christian life and the zeal and the purposefulness with which you and I ought to live the Christian life. That's why Peter says in, uh, here, coming in, uh, in verses, um, well, actually we can start with verse 11. Notice what Peter says. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Seeing then these things, what manner of persons ought you, ought you to be? The, with the things that you have seen in your lifetime, what manner of person are you? And the things that you and I have seen in recent weeks and months, what manner of persons are we? You see, Peter is saying, look around you, Christian. Look within you, Christian. But most importantly, look up, Christian. 
And look into the Word of God and use the Word of God to navigate through this time. That's why he said in the first chapter, you do well to take heed as a light that shines in a dark place. That's why the Word of God is given to us. And so again, the Christian life, seeing then what manner of persons you ought to be. Notice how he goes on though in verse 12, looking and hastening unto the coming of the day of God. As you see here again, and again there's a sense in which uh, we, can, we can really make a case that, that the second coming of Jesus Christ is really at the center of what, Paul, of what Peter is, is, is writing about in this epistle. And it's the responses to the second coming that fill out the body of the epistle. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, see that ye Look for such things. Be diligent. There's that word again. That you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. And account of the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. Even as our beloved brother Paul. And according to the wisdom given unto him has written, has written unto you. As also in all of his epistles speaking in them things in which are some hard to be understood. Which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do the other scriptures under their own destruction. They, ye therefore beloved. Seeing that you know these things before, beware, lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Do you see what's happening here? All the way in this closing section of this epistle, having exposed the false teachers, having revealed the reality of scoffers, what does Peter say to us? He says, what manner of persons ought we to be? And he answers it. You know what manner of persons you and I are to be? We're to be holy people. That's what he says here in the passage of Scripture. Again, we are to be a holy people, a people conformed to Christ. You know what else we're to be? We're to be an expectant people living in preparation. Uh, Three times we have the verb looking in this passage of Scripture. Verse 12, verse 13, verse 14. What are we looking for? We're not looking for retirement. We're not looking to, to hit the powerball. We're looking for the return of our glorious Lord. You see, this is what Peter lays out before us. What else are we to do? We're to be holding up with patience, having the word of God direct our way. And two more things that we see here. That the Christian is to be steadfast in his Christian faith. And he's not only to be steadfast in his Christian faith by way of a defense. He's defending himself against the false teachers. He's defending himself against the mockers. Now that's not enough. The Christian is not only to to defend, the Christian is to grow. And that's what God has given to you and me. The ability to grow even in a corrupt world. The ability to grow even in the presence of mockers. The ability to grow even though threatened by false teachers. Why is there this ability to grow? Because that's what the nature of the Christian life is. It is life. It is life in every sense of the word. It's not a picture. It's not static. It's not something you put on a shelf. It is living. It is active. It is powerful. Everything that the word of God is is only a picture of what the nature of salvation is in the soul. And so my Christian brothers and sisters, again, let us grow. Let us be steadfast. Let us be diligent. Let us always be moving on in the work that God has for us. Why? Because you and I, not only do we personally have a glorious hope, we have a glorious message to take to a lost and dying world. And if it's God's desire that none perish and that all come to a knowledge of salvation, shouldn't something of that be in our desire as well? 
that you and I would desire to see even the scoffer come to faith in Jesus. And it happens. It happens. Even false teachers, again, even though in the passage of Scripture, their their, their end is, is, is very clearly marked out. But you know the old saying, so long as there's breath in the lungs, there's hope for the soul. So the false teacher, we would even say, may have to say in very strong words, either stop that form of teaching or leave this congregation. But we can also say, my friend, do you understand what a distortion you're bringing to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you understand when you make men's lust and desires the key theme of what the religious life is all about? Do you understand when you reduce the gospel to materialism? Do you know not only what you're doing to the glory of God, but to the souls of men and women? And we never know, do we? The Spirit of God working, breaking in. And so again, as we come to the close of this passage of Scripture, really in one sense, as I said just a minute ago, Peter's great sight on the horizon is what? His great sight on the horizon is is, is not the nature of the Christian life as much as we've had to develop that. His great sight on the horizon is not the nature of false teachers. It's not the nature of scoffers. The great sight on the horizon is the glorious return of Jesus Christ. My friends, your Savior, the one who was raised from the dead to newness of life, is the same one who just as sure as he has promised to forgive you of your sins, has promised to come back to rule and to reign. I don't know where that fits within your thinking, within your theology, but I hope it is in some way, shape, or form preeminent that there is a glorious return of Jesus Christ that we await for. Do you hear already the mockers and the scoffers in the back of your head? Do you hear the false teachers kind of not making mention of that? You've heard the word of God. Our Father and our God, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do ask and pray, Lord, that thou...